yes, I want to change. Yes, I want things to be different. But if I exist only in things being different, I completely miss where I'm at now. And I'm going to inhabit my life as it is today. I'm going to inhabit myself. I'm going to inhabit my world as it is today, while I also look to make some changes. So for a lot of us, 2020 was a wake-up call, jarring in many ways that we absolutely acknowledge. And also, it was a wake-up call that many of us desperately needed to be able to look at our lives, at how we work, at how we live, at how we step into our relationships, at what we value and more with a pair of fresh eyes. Yet now, almost two years later, many of us are still struggling with how we answer the call how we respond to the questions and the yearning to live and be and contribute differently. And I imagine right about now, we'd all love some kind of blueprint or some sort of direction as we try to take what we've learned and experienced in the past few years and use it to embrace new passions and careers and ideas that have lit us up. So joining me today to explore these ideas, to explore how we can all move forward with more intention and meaning in life and work and relationships is my good friend, behavior coach, certified interface spiritual director, host of the One You Feed podcast and writer, Eric Zimmer. Now, this format is a bit different. It's not our typical conversation where I sort of lead with a new guest. Eric and I have been having these deep private jams together for years, centering topics that fascinate us and matter to all of us. So we thought we would get together and just turn on the mics and share one of these deep dives in a more public way. And we tee up three topics we've both been really deeply noodling on and exploring. Finding meaning at work, setting and sustaining healthy, functional boundaries, especially between work and life, which is a really interesting dynamic right now. And also, especially when you really like your work or maybe even love it. And we also explore what it looks like to really embrace change and not buy into a lot of the mythology around change and create new habits in a practical way. So excited to take one of these normally behind closed doors conversations that Eric and I have on a fairly regular basis and open it up and share ideas and thoughts and conversations from both of us through our experience and our exposure to so many incredible human beings over a long period of time. And also, if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to check out Eric's podcast, The One You Feed, wherever you listen to podcasts. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Eric Zimmer. I'm so excited to be doing this. You know, like we have been rolling in the podcast space together for years now. Yeah. Talking about similar things. We have these great conversations on the side. We were literally talking yesterday and we're like, we should have hit record on that. It would have been a great conversation to air. And finally, we found the time to sit down and just jam about some topics that we both care deeply about. Yeah. I'm excited to do this. It's fun to sort of do something that's a little bit different where there's not one person who's interviewer and interviewee, but more of just a collaboration. Yeah, love it. We talked about a couple of different topics that have been sort of top of mind. I think things that have been coming up in our universes, ecosystems, probably questions that we've been getting asked about by a lot of people. And we thought it'd be fun to just share some thoughts and ideas around these topics. Do you want to tee up the first one and we'll just kind of see where it goes? Sure. I think the first one that we talked about was the idea of how can people bring more meaning and get more enjoyment out of their nine to five jobs? You know, if they're not in a position where they're looking at like, well, I'm going to quit this and, you know, go off and chase my passion. But for a variety of reasons, they've done the calculus and the calculus is hey, I'm in a pretty good spot here, right? Like this is my this is my job. It may not be my deepest passion, but it pays the bills. I like it. You know, I can think back to myself where I was, right? And, you know, I've got a job. It's challenging. I like the people. There's There's lots of good here. And yet it does take a toll on me if I don't manage my mindset around it, right? So I think we could just, you know, talk a little bit about bringing more meaning to work. And I think we both love this topic for a lot of different reasons in no small part because for the typical person, right, you know, you mentioned nine to five, the typical person these days, like that nine to five is starting to grow, especially in the world that we live in over the last couple of years where boundaries have kind of been annihilated. So many people are working from home or from cafes or from where it may be, which on the one hand is fantastic, you know, a lot more freedom, a lot more flexibility. I know so many people that have literally gotten three hours back in their day because they're not commuting an hour and a half each way. But at the same time, the destruction of boundaries, because we're just not used to setting up and working and being effective in that space, has almost taken all that time back. So I wonder if before we even get into what are some of the things that we can think about shifting in the context of the work itself? Have you been thinking about this notion of boundaries in any meaningful way and sort of like how that sort of become this issue that I think in a lot of ways, it wasn't nearly as centered before the last few years? Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting if I think back on my career, even though, and I don't know if this was just working in the software industry, I feel like that lack of boundaries started a long time ago in Mm. like, you know, there was, it was this badge of honor to be sending out emails at you know, midnight. And that was always there. And so 
in the last few years for myself, I've actually gotten a little bit more stringent with boundaries, even though my mm-hmm. work is my life in a way, right? Like, I mean, I still have really realized like I need to set some hard limits. Otherwise, like I can just carry it with me always, you know, I can always be like, well, that's not really work, you know, for a long time until the last in a couple of years, I didn't take weekends, right? I'd be like, yeah, but I'm only doing like a couple hours, you know? But I really realized like I was never really getting away. And so over the last couple of years for me, I've suddenly become like, whoa, this is really great. This ability to set some hard boundaries is really valuable. Not checking email though at all hours is still a challenge for me. It's so habitual. You and me both. (laughs) I do better with it for a while and I get it. I sort of get it put in its box and then it breaks loose again. And I you know, I wrestle with it for a while and I finally, you know, shove it back in the corner. Yeah, no, that's, I completely agree with that. And the notion of, you know, um, you came out of, you know, sort of a, a mainstream center job for many decades, much more recently than I did. I've sort of been bouncing around through my own endeavors for the better part of 20 years now, but it wasn't even until recently. It was a really interesting tell where this was a couple of years back. And for some reason it stayed in my mind, you know, I was out doing something I was buying something and I was like, do I use the personal credit card? Do you use the business credit card? Cause this is kind of the all, it's one <laughs> big mashup. Yeah. You know, the distinction started to become really hard for me, which yes. in one way is wonderful. It's amazing. But in the other way, there are things outside of this thing called work that I love and I need to create really intentional space for. So for, for me, I've been trying to be much more structured, you know, we're literally, I bake into my calendar now, you know, like similar to you, I'm really trying to respect the weekends at this point because it's become so easy to just sort of cloister myself in my own office studio, you know, like for a ridiculous amount of hours. I have movement. I have meditation. Like I literally have this all calendared in yeah, so yeah. that I build everything around it, even though I love what I do, you know, for the most part, you know, like there's always stuff I don't love. Sure. But I still have to like, I don't have the ability <laughs> if I don't build it in in advance to honor the fact that there are other things that are important in my life. I, I, for some reason, don't have that level of willpower. Absolutely. I've had to be really diligent about like, this is when work starts, you know, and here are the things I want to do before work. Because otherwise, I mean, I, I could just, you know, sit down, you know, pop on the computer real quick. Let me just hop on real quick and see what's going on, you know, and then, you know, that's it. The morning's gone, which is normally, you know, movement, meditation, you know, a few different things that, that I like to squeeze in in the morning. So it's definitely respecting those boundaries and setting them is really important. And it's funny to think about for essentially the last 10 years of my corporate career, some of that was as a consultant, some of it was as a full-time person. I had side projects. I built a solar energy company. I built this podcast. And what I learned during that period was really interesting because I had pretty demanding jobs and pretty demanding things on the side. And we have this sense that we have to always be on. What I found was that I got really, really good at being focused in those other jobs on what was absolutely critical Hmm. because I wanted my time right? I didn't want to give 50 hours a week if I didn't have to. So I became very focused on how can I have the maximal impact with the minimum amount of time? And so a lot of things that I used to be a lot more 
fastidious about like, oh, I've got to reply to every email. I've got to be in every meeting. I've got to, I stopped doing a lot of that. And it was interesting to see my effectiveness in the eyes of the people who employed me was not diminished at all, hmm. you know? And so I think a lot of times we, we feel like we have to always be on, but I don't know if that's, I'm, there are certainly cases where you've got an overbearing boss and, and you do, but I think it's something we can all ask ourselves again, do I really, you know, or is that just a, an assumption that I'm making or is that what other people are doing? Is that the only way to be good and effective at what I do? And if I gave myself a little bit more downtime, might I be more effective in the time I'm on? And that turned out to be the case for me. Yeah, completely. And I've experienced that same thing. I, I have this weird shorthand for it. You know, I sort of, I ask myself often, you know, like, do I feel like the work that I'm doing at a given moment is time being served or time being of service? It's a subtle shift, but it's actually really, really important, you know, because in one, I feel like it's a have to, and the other, it's like, oh, this is a gift. It may be hard, yeah, but you know, I'm doing it for a bigger reason and it's nourishing on a whole different level. Um, Let's kind of circle back to like the question that you tee this off with though, you know, because I think boundaries are an issue. I think being really intentional about what we're doing, especially these days is an issue, especially if you've got those side projects because you can get totally fragmented. But for those who actually show up and work that traditional mainstream job, and as you were saying, there may be a lot that's right about it. And there's a lot of sort of popular mythology that says, well, just blow it up. And that has certainly become so much more normed over the last few years that more people mm-hmm. are willing to do it. My take is, is on the blowing up option also before we get into like, how do we actually do that nine to five time better is that it's become so normalized actually that a lot of people are doing it prematurely or without being fully informed. And we tend to, as human beings to overestimate the amount of joy that we'll feel when we free ourselves from the yes. shackles of this thing and dramatically underestimate the pain of the disruption that will come <laughs> immediately after that as we're trying to figure out which way is up. Yeah. And we overestimate how quickly we're going to get to the next thing, which is going to make us come live, which often doesn't. I'm curious what your take is on that moment. Yeah, I'm closer to it, as you said. Like, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm four years out, right? And so the four years that I did the podcast before I was able to do it full time, I mean, that was my... I remember it was, it was at Camp GLP was the first time your, the camp you put on was the first time I allowed myself to actually even say in my own head, I want to do this full time. Like that's my goal. Up till then I hadn't even, I just did it as a hobby and I loved it. And, and that was when I sort of imagined it. And from that moment on, it was very much like that's, that's what I'm aiming at. And when I get there, you know, and I'm not saying that it's not better than it was. I'm happy to be, I'm doing work that's really meaningful to me. I'm in a really good place. But my life did not go from, you know, my happiness level did not go from like a six to a 20 when I switched because there was some initial relief, but I traded for a new set of challenges, right? I traded all of a sudden I don't have a steady paycheck and that's a different animal to wrestle with, right? It's a different type of worry. So yeah, I think, again, I'm glad I did it. I I feel very fortunate and very blessed, but it was not the panacea maybe that I thought it would be. It's still effort and there are still challenges. You know, I think often of, of artists who think, you know, if all I could do, you know, if I could just do my art full time, but 
that doesn't always work out, right? It puts a whole nother set of pressures on you. And that whole other set of pressures can start to corrupt the thing that you loved, right? I mean, one of the challenges for me has been, how do I keep the love in what I'm doing when it also has to pay the bills and I have to stress a little bit about it paying the bills? Like it's not a foregone conclusion that it's going to pay the bills. What does that do to my relationship to this thing that, that I loved? I don't think we think about that often enough. Yeah. Uh, so they're with you. And it's something that um, I think we don't think about it in, until you're in it. And it's also the type of thing where I think very often you can't think your way to an answer. That's right. Sometimes you actually just have to make the call and then realize, ooh, there are all these different things coming up that I need to grapple with that I didn't anticipate, that I would really prefer not be the circumstance at the moment. Totally. And yet here we are. you know. And then you have to make the decision, well, was it a good call and are these things resolvable? Yeah. You know, or was what I was doing actually better than I thought? Um, yeah. And I might want to sort of like move, move forward into something similar that built on that. It's been interesting. I've, I've noticed there will come a time periodically. It, it happens less. I've gotten better at being an entrepreneur. I think there's a skill. There's a skill set to be like managing the anxiety that comes around not getting a paycheck, right? That I've gotten better at. But I would notice... I'm checking the help wanted ads for, you know, mm. software development, you know, positions, you know, what if I could just find a 10 hours of consulting a week? What if I could, or I meet up with a friend who was, you know, now, you know, four years on is like, you know, that we were peers and they're two levels up and I know what their salary is now. Right. And that's where I would be. I know where they're at salary wise. And I think, look at that house. That would sure be nice. Like I made some sacrifices in order to make it happen as I'm not like poverty stricken. I don't want to paint that picture at all. But it is a, it's a different situation for sure. Yeah. Especially when, I mean, it's interesting when you can look back at the career that you, you left behind and you kind of know there's a fairly well-defined ladder right. of like status and prestige and income. Yep. And like, so you can kind of say, well, like that's where I would have been yeah. pretty much with a fair level of confidence. Um, it is fascinating. Um, and at the same time, you have to kind of remind yourself, but look at how much I've actually been able to create that wasn't there outside of money and status and whatever those other indicators are. Absolutely. And I feel 98% set with that I did the right thing. Like, you know, it, it's, there's a very, very little doubt in my mind. There's just occasional pangs of it. Um, but that's partially because I, I work to manage those. And it's interesting. I think you and I have talked about this before because I had to work to manage my impression of my day job while I had it in order to do my best work outside of it. And I think this maybe transitions to what we're, you know, getting to also, which is how do you put more meaning into this other thing? Because I had this sense, like maybe if I just really resent what I'm doing, it'll get me out faster. And that turned out to be exactly wrong. I had to find a way to love what I was doing while I pursued something else. And that actually turned out to be the path that worked best. So even as I was like, this job, this career is not where I'm going to be long term, I still have to invest in it in a way, in a curious way, in order to keep my overall mental well-being at a high enough level. Yeah, because effectively you're investing in yourself, not the job, but it, it may appear that you're you're investing in the job. And, and I completely agree. You know, I think if you do the work to really opt out, like make the thing that you're at currently as good as it can possibly be before you make the decision, right? Because 
this is a pattern that I saw in myself. And I've since seen it in so many other folks who I've been fortunate to be in conversation with, which is that once we start to feel like maybe this isn't quite the right thing for us, and I'll speak for myself, you would start to do, or I, I would start to do like a hundred tiny things that I wasn't realizing were sort of subconsciously sabotaging my ability to make it as good as possible, to actually make it something I could enjoy. And my take is that like my brain was kind of saying, if I make this as painful as humanly possible, then my rational brain has an easier time jettisoning, making the decision to walk away and enduring whatever suffering comes from that because I can tell the story of how horrible yeah. that old thing was without ever really saying what I was complicit in that. You know, and and so the notion, I, I love your idea of making it as good as humanly possible because then we can have a more objective measure. And maybe, maybe we stay because we actually realize, well, if I'm actually working for myself rather than against myself in this context, it actually can be way better than I thought it would be. And I think that kind of brings us full circle to where we started, right? Like, what are those, like, how do we actually look at this thing and decide, is it improvable? And how much of it is about circumstance and how much of it is actually about our own, our own state of mind, our own frame? Yeah. I think there are obvious times where we can look at it and be like, okay, this is circumstance. I'm in an, I'm in an objectively awful place. You know, like I've got a terrible, terrible boss. Yeah. And, and there are toxic and harmful situations where you just need to, to get yourself out for sure. That's right. But assuming that it's in a gray area, right, which is where it's going to fall for most people is then um, I always think, to your point, all things being equal, if I don't have to blow my life up, that's probably a good thing. So let me see. It's like if you're in a marriage, right? And it's, well, it's not great, but you're not certain. You're like, well, it's, it's not bad enough. I'm planning to walk out the door today. I'm uncertain, right? The, the wise thing to do in my mind would be to invest as much as you can in that marriage and find out. Because if it is savable, that, and you can make it good, that is probably the best, you know, that's the best outcome, right? Because you just, just from collateral damage perspective, right? I think if we're uncertain, I think it makes sense to say, well, let me assume some of this is my state of mind. And what happens if I start to change that? And I think it can be really helpful to give ourselves time periods to be mm -hmm. like, you know what? Six months. For six months, I'm in here and I'm going to do everything I can to make this as good as I can in six months. And at the end of six months, I'll reevaluate. Because to your point, there's all these subtle ways that when we're either thinking we're out the door or when we're on the fence, there's all these subtle ways that we don't either invest in or we actively make things worse. Yeah. And completely subconsciously. It's not like we're intentionally trying of to, course. Yeah. to sabotage this thing, but we just... I think our brain runs this script that says, you know, like if I'm leaning towards a decision, I need to contribute to the evidence for that decision, especially if your brain is kind of feeling like, and it may cause pain, even though it may, it may open me to possibility, there may be pain along the way. So I need to be, I almost wonder if there's a social context to this also in that I know that if I make a decision there are going to be those around me who don't understand the decision and potentially judge me and judge the decision. And I need to point to how bad it was mm -hmm. to, to basically be able to still belong and justify what I did. And like you said, there will be moments and opportunities and jobs where you absolutely, it, the pain is legit. It's a hundred percent real. 
it's toxic, it may be exploitive, whatever it may be, get out. But that's not necessarily the majority of our situations. Um, when you make this decision, let's say it's like the six month window we're talking about, yeah. you just outlined, right? So it's like the question becomes then for me, like, what do you do in that six month window? Mm. Like, and you know, of course, I've spent years now sort of like in this body of work around the sparkotypes and identifying yeah. the essential impulse for work that makes you come alive and trying to center that. And that's a part of it in my mind, right? Totally. Part of it is self, you know, a, a deeper commitment to self-discovery, like really get to know yourself better, what fills you and what empties you. You know, sparkotype is one thing, but there's a whole bunch of other things that are really important to understand about yourself. And then to really sort of like say, well, what experiments could I run in that six month window that might somehow be able to better align the things that I do with who I know myself on a deeper level to be? I mean, does that take resonate with sort of like how you would step into that moment? Or I'm curious whether you have other ideas also. I have other ideas, but I think absolutely. I think you're right. If we don't, a lot of times we don't, we know we're not satisfied, but we don't know what would satisfy us. And so to your point, you know, Sparkotype being a, a, a great, my, uh, my partner, just uh, off note right now, my partner, Ginny is co considering some work with a, a woman she met recently. They're collaborating on some mindfulness based things and some different things they're going to work on. And they both recently did the Sparkotype to talk about how they might, about what would work well together. So ah, the, the Sparkotype book is again on my coffee table. So, <laughs> so it's a, it's a great framework for that. So yeah, knowing, okay, what does satisfy me? You know, what do I enjoy doing? And you know, I, what's the, you're closer to the work world. Is it, what do they call it? Job crafting? Is that the, mm -hmm. yep. you know, it's, yeah. it's where you, you, you sort of try and within the confines of your current job to find tasks and activities that more resonate with who you are and what you like to do. So Sparkotype, other assessments, looking at what parts of your job do you like? When do you feel good? For me, I found really looking at the relationships around me was really valuable. Mm -hmm. Like who I am here, who I show up as today actually makes a difference in the world, right? So I want to go make a difference in the world in this bigger way, maybe. Let's say you've got a passion, you want to go do this thing in a bigger way. But me showing up and I work, let's say I interact with 15 people that day, right? If I am a, a, a light in those 15 people's lives, you know, within reason, right? Those 15 people go home and they interact with other people. So there is meaning embedded. If nothing else, I found I, and can find great meaning in how do I interact with the people around me? Because there is meaning in that. That was one I really leaned on, you know, in those last few years in that job was like, okay, who am I around? Who's on my team? You know, I've got people who are on my team and, um, you know, I'm going to leave and I want them to, you know, I'm investing in them, their careers. How do I make sure when I leave here, they've got the best chance for the rest of their career? And I was in a little bit of a leadership role, but even just in meetings, how do, how do I interact with people? I think it really matters. And it ripples in ways we don't see. That's the mm. hard part is we don't see the way it ripples, but it does, you know? Yeah. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Good Life Project is brought to you by Air Doctor, makers of those amazing air purifiers I keep in my home studio and have been talking about for a long time now. So even though I talk for a living, my vocal pipes could use some help dealing with indoor air, which can contain so many different irritants. Luckily, my trusty Air Doctor uses an incredibly advanced Ultra HEPA filter to capture particles a hundred times smaller than old school HEPA filters. We're talking smoke, pollen, mold, bacteria, all those nasty micro critters in the air. My air doctor just gobbles them up so I can podcast and breathe and write and be in peace and with peace of mind. So give your indoor air a purification boost with Air Doctor. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day breathe easy money back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use the promo code GOODLIFE and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to podcast customers, you'll also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. So lock this special offer in by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com or airdoctorpro.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the promo code GOODLIFE. So if you're looking for ways to be happier, healthier, and more productive and creative, I have got a great podcast recommendation for you. And it's from an old friend of mine, Gretchen Rubin. She's the number one best-selling author of The Happiness Project. And every week, she shares insights and practical solutions in the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast along with her co-host and happiness guinea pig, her sister, Elizabeth Kraft, who's also a Hollywood showrunner. So you can join Gretchen and Elizabeth as they reveal really fun and wise insights from cutting-edge science, ancient wisdom, pop culture, and their own experiences about cultivating happiness and good habits. Every week, they offer a manageable try-this-at-home tip that you can use to boost your happiness without spending a lot of time and energy or money. Suggestions such as follow the one-minute rule, choose a one-word theme for the year, or design your summer. And they also feature segments like Know Yourself Better, where they discuss questions like, are you an overbuyer or underbuyer, a morning person or night person, abundance lover or simplicity lover? And every episode includes a happiness hack, a quick, easy shortcut to more happiness. I have had the great fortune to be able to share countless lunches and coffees with Gretchen in New York over a period of actually decades at this point and learn so much from her. And now you get the benefit of her wisdom too. So listen and follow Happier with Gretchen Rubin, an Odyssey podcast available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Good Life Project is sponsored by Defender. So living in Boulder, Colorado, I'm a huge outdoors person. Adventure is just such a fun part of life. I'm always looking for ways to bring more into each day. And the Defender 110 can be a big part of that. The Defender 110 helps you push what's possible with a vehicle that's made to go further. With its legendary off-road chops, the Defender can tackle gnarly trails, tough weather, and extreme environments in no small part because they've tested Defenders in some of the harshest environments on Earth so you can count on its durability in the wild. And the Defender welcomes all your stuff with wide open cargo space. No need to cram like sardines when there's room for the whole family and all your gear. Driving one of these legendary vehicles gives you the confidence to explore more and stress less. And it's also packed with innovations to connect and protect you, like innovative camera tech and an intuitive driver display to make maneuvering a breeze. The Defender family includes the two-door 90, the 110, and the 130 with room for up to eight thrill seekers. This ride is made to push limits and possibilities to take the adventure to you and deliver maximum fun along the way. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com Defender. Your Defender awaits, my friends. 
I love that. And that, that question, how can I be a light in other people's lives? I think sometimes we ask that question in the context of our personal lives or our personal relationships. It, it may come more easily to people. The notion of that, asking that question in the context of work, to me is fascinating because each one, each relationship is an opportunity for you to make meaning by contributing to the betterment others around you. Um, and whether you're wired to just naturally do that or not, like we all experience some sense of purpose and meaningfulness, you know, when we know that we have in some way, like move the needle, even in the tiniest way in another person's life, even people who we're not all that close to, that's a really interesting take on how to like take that time and say like, yes, the, the actual work that I'm doing matters, but what about the social context, the relational container that I'm in? What opportunities do I have there to make meaning and to just feel, and yes, I'm going to have an, an impact on other people's lives, which is awesome. But also maybe that really changes the way that I experience the nearly identical work. Like the job description hasn't changed. Yeah. I mean, you, you read the stories in the, in the work literature about like janitors who work in hospitals, right? right? And somehow they are, you know, I, I always think like this, these people are exceptional people, right? Because they are connecting their work as a janitor to the higher purpose of healing. And so you may, you know, you may not be able to do that in the same way with, with your, your work. I worked at my, my last role was, you know, I worked for the gap and the gap was actually a good company, right? Like their social values align with mine. They, they, a lot of really good things about it. I found it hard. Although now when I think about like when I'm expecting a package to arrive and it doesn't arrive, how, you know, like, you know, I, I was in the, you know, fulfillment side of that business. You know, it might be hard to convince myself that shipping jeans is all that meaningful in the grand scheme of things. But again, I was able to find meaning in the people. And then I think there's also a chance to find meaning in doing the best work of which I am capable. Mm. You know, there is an intrinsic factor that feels good when we do that. I talk about when I exercise, I feel good in two ways, right? One is I feel good because I've moved my body and all that. But the second is I feel good because I, I did what I said I was going to do. There's an internal alignment. And I think when we show up at work and we do our best, we, we really step into it and try. There's an internal alignment that feels good versus I kind of go in and phone it in all day. No matter what, I think that causes an internal misalignment that just subtly doesn't feel good. So I think we can find meaning just in, you know what, I'm contributing to the best of my ability in the place that I'm at, you know, 40, 50 hours a week. I think there's something that can be found in the intrinsic sense. I love that. It's sort of like having a sense of your capabilities, honoring your desire to actually show up as your best self and contribute at the highest level you feel capable of regardless of what the expectation is around you, you know, because sometimes the expectation actually may be, I mean, literally I've had friends that work in jobs where they went into a new culture and they loved what they did and they started just jamming and performing at a really high level and people all around them who had been there for some of them for, for decades were like, uh, you need to like bring this down like a minute <laughs> because that's not how we do things here. Yeah. Like we need, we work at a slower pace and we like, this is the way that it works here in this shop. And, and my friends are just like devastated 
because they were alive from like, they were doing the thing that they like really enjoyed doing and at a pace and at a level of competence that really lit them up. And then the, the culture they stepped into was saying like, you can do the exact same thing, but at a lower level, a more constrained level, like you can't be fully yourself. And that alone can be kind of brutalizing. So it's interesting to actually even run that experiment. If you work in a culture where the expectations actually are set at a level where you would rather show up and exceed those expectations to just show up and exceed those expectations and see what happens. You know, my guess is some folks will really take notice in a positive way, but there may also be interesting, like an interesting like reaction, which is negative. It, I'd be fascinated. Like, I wonder if there's research actually on dynamics like this in the workplace and how it affects people um, and how it change, like whether it, like there would be enough rebound rejection of your wanting to show up and function at the highest possible level for no other reason that it makes you feel good. Like how culture would embrace that within where you are. I think it's a really interesting experiment to run in that six month window you were talking about. Totally. Yeah. And you know, it's, you know, I don't want to be painting an, uh, an overly like, you know, unicorn picture, right? The culture you're in really does matter. You know, it's hard if you're swimming way upstream, you know? And so, you know, but again, I, I love the, I loved what you said, which is experiments in this six month window. I think that's a really great way to think about it. Well, what if I try this? What if I try that? What if I do this? You know, what works, what doesn't work, what, jives with the culture, what causes more, you know, oh, I tried that and it actually made things worse. All right, well, let's abandon that, you know, because now everybody's mad at me. So I, I think you just try and then it, then it's it, six months you've got, or three months, maybe, maybe six months is too long, but it, it, you've got a data point. I just find it helpful to set an amount of time so that I can step off the fence for that amount of time. Because otherwise mm. I will, you know, I've done this, you know, I've done this with spiritual paths, right? Because, you know, I mean, the nature of our work, right? You get somebody on, you know, every week. I'm like, oh, wow, I ought to be doing that. You know, oh, God, I got to try that. You know, and I just found I was like all over the place. So I would be like, all right, it is this teacher and it is Zen and it is six months. And I'm not going to dip any between now and the end of six months. I'm not going to be like, well, I wonder if that's a better. Well, of course I will inside my brain. And then I'll just go, nope, we're staying here. I found various areas in my life where it's really helpful just to say for this amount of time, I'm stepping off the fence and I'm committing. I'm not ready to commit mm -hmm. to this for the rest of my life, but I'm, I'm going to commit for a period of time because that allows me to actually invest and not have that mental energy of it'll be better somewhere else. You know, I, I have a, I have a natural grass is greener brain. Yeah. I think we all do. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Yeah, the six month window is interesting. A dear friend of mine, Charlie Gilkey, who I think you know also, um, yep. is he's a huge fan of um, of running sort of like quarterly, you know, like three. He's like basically like commit to everything for at least a quarter. But I think it's also a really interesting invitation that you're offering, which is that think about how long it would realistically take for you to have enough experience with this thing to get a reasonable amount of data to make an intelligent decision with it. So like a spiritual practice, three months is kind of a drop in the bucket. <laughs> to, to, so it's six months. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, six years is sort of like probably like more <laughs> right. accurate, but in our modern day and age, like who is going to wait anywhere near that long? It just doesn't happen in our lives. So. Yeah. And what was interesting is when I got to six months, I was like, yes, another six months. 
and another mm. six months. And, you know, next thing I know, it's, it's, you know, several years I've been, you know, was working in the same path. And now I, I still am. Now I'm going to be working with a different teacher, but that was beneficial for me. Same thing with like exercise. I'll just find like, all right, you know, I'm going to just, I'm going to try and do this for, for the next, you know, 90 days. Let me find out what it's like if I stay with it. Yeah, I love that. I'm kind of feeling this is leading us uh, somewhat organically into one of the other topics that we were we were both really fascinated by, which is sort of the process of change, because that's part mm. of what we're talking about here, right? Like, and we've been talking about in in the context of of work and job, but more broadly, I feel like there is the changes in the air. Like, for to a certain extent, over the last couple of years, you could say, you know, like the the amount of forced change has been dramatically increased. Um, whether that's a good thing, a bad thing, or just a thing, I think is a matter of perspective and also whether we're, we're equipped to handle that and how we sort of like step into it. Um, it's certainly not like change or groundlessness is something new. You know, this is the state of existence. This is the state of our lives, but it's been amplified and centered in a way that I feel like for many people, it hasn't been until fairly recently. And the question is like, whether it's imposed from the outside in, or we just like, you know what, there's something about me or my life or my relationships or my health or whatever it is where I'm actually not satisfied. I'm not fulfilled. And I, I want to make something different, whether it's an internal change or an external change. Like I am not okay with the way things are. And I want things to be different, which involves a process of change, but like stepping into that change can happen in a functional way, in a healthy way, in a constructive way, or a wildly dysfunctional, unhealthy, and destructive way. And sometimes the difference between the two is more subtle than we'd like to think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, give me an example in your mind of like a destructive or, or dysfunctional way of approaching change. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I think of, I mean, if we take something that's sort of like a mass desire for change, like so many people want to get fit yep. and, and certainly after the last few years, like so many of us have been feel like we're sort of like locked in a cocoon and yep. we lost the ability to go outside and do stuff. And, and, you know, like the, and, and we're not happy with our weight. We're not happy with our fitness, with our ability, with the health markers that come from all these different things. So I think the impulse very often, and look, I'm raising my hand right here is okay, I can't take this anymore. Like I am a blob. <laughs> I'm not like, I'm like, I, I know things hurt that shouldn't be hurting. And I know like I'm not able to do these different things. And granted, I think, we, you know, this is my example that is relevant to a lot of different people. And of course, everybody steps into this from a different place of ability. Um, so it's important to acknowledge that. Like, But for me, physical fitness and physical ability to whatever extent my body allows it to happen is important to yep. me. It makes me feel a certain way. And I know it's important to me just for my well-being moving forward and for my mental health. But there's a sweet spot, right? Like, so my impulse as being a, a little bit of a type A person, I like to will things into reality. And that has been my MO for my entire life. It's been my MO in entrepreneurship. It's been like, it's like I have a vision for something and then I will just work myself to the bone to make it happen as fast as humanly possible. But with things like taking care of our physical body, there's a sweet spot where if you do it at a certain pace with a certain amount of recovery built into it and a certain amount of intensity built into it in a way that honors your unique body, then it can be really constructive and it can lead to lasting change. You know, that's healthy and functional and is sustainable potentially for years, if not decades, and your whole life. But literally like 
a hot minute faster or like a touch more intense can and has sent me spiraling over the edge of injury and total and suffering and debilitation. And the same thing is like, if I go outside of that sweet spot in the other direction, nothing happens. <laughs> you know, if I'm like, if I decide to go for a walk once a week and like eat something, like eat a plant, you know, like every other week, <laughs> <laughs> like that is not going to get me to where I want to be. So I think there's this for a lot of things that we, where we're seeking change, you know, especially where we really feel like, okay, there's been an inciting incident that's made me really realize how unhappy or uncomfortable or unsatisfied I am with the status quo. I can't be here for a minute longer. That's a great energy to work off mm -hmm. of, to leverage. But like what you do with that can be largely determinative of whether the change we seek leads to the outcome we want and in a healthy way that's sustainable or the exact opposite. Yeah. So that's sort of like when I think about my life, that's kind of the the thing that comes most immediately to mind. Yep. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in there. As somebody who used to injure himself on a regular basis, I don't know if it's just age or wisdom or a combination of the both that I've actually gotten better at that. But yeah, I think, you know, this, you hit an interesting point there about the sweet spot, right? Because it's really interesting to think about like, what is motivating us and are we setting a direction? Are we setting a goal? You know, is this thing that we're looking at changing a value? We know, for example, that like setting a short-term weight goal of like, I'm going to lose 30 pounds in two weeks is probably a terrible idea, right? Like it doesn't tend to work or if it does, it doesn't last. And yet we also know that numbers and goals can be motivating, right? So I think it's, it's, knowing yourself and knowing, knowing what works. But, you know, for me, I think the things that have worked best for me is so, with like, say fitness is a value that says I value being physically fit. Mm. Why, you know, now I can get into why that is right. For me, it's primarily, well, at least for a while, it became very primarily about my mental health. As I've looked at my parents aging, and I've gotten a close-up view of what that's like, it's, that is filtered into like, okay, I got to work out for my health in the future. Uh, that future window is shrinking, <laughs> you know, it's not as far away as it used to be, you know, and my parents, you know, both of them in their own way, that's like a preview of coming attractions. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm going to take this more seriously. So in that way, then fitness becoming a value, then is less likely to lead to doing too much. I think it also takes away for, since I'm not in a like, I'm just like, look, moving my body on a regular basis is like, that's just what I'm going to do here on out. You know, it's, it's a value also helps. Like if, you know, a week goes by and I don't do it, you know, because then I'm not like, well, I blew it. I was on the right track. I was, you know, it's just like, nope, you just, kind of get back on. So I think if it can become a, a, a value, a direction that we want to move in because we recognize broadly speaking as a direction, being kinder, you know, that, that is another um, value that points to a direction that we can move. But again, as we said, sometimes specificity is really valuable. So I think it kind of depends where you are and what you're, you know, how you're trying to change. Yeah, that's really interesting to position it as a value rather than sort of like a, a specific outcome or a program 
where you know, like there are certain boxes that you have to follow, certain things you have to do every day, and if you don't check the box for too many days in a row, well, then you know, like it's just over and you're completely yeah. <laughs> done. You know, it's I think a value in, and even a practice. Um, and you know, if you look at the habit literature, right? You know, if you want to actually affect change and then have a sustain at some point, you very likely have to turn the behaviors that led to the change into a habit, something that just starts to happen on autopilot, where you're not thinking about it anymore. It's just part of who you are. And that's what some of the habit literature talks about is the shift from behavior to identity. Like I'm the type of person who does X or who believes X. And then, you know, it's, it's just a part of you and that's what allows you to sustain it. And I think you're right. Like your idea of like thinking of it as a value makes it much, it makes it a more sustainable type of thing. And it makes it easier to just kind of say like, I wasn't feeling up to it. I had like a brutal week of, of work where I just literally couldn't do it, but it's not about me having like broken the program I was on. It's like, no broad scheme. Like I value this thing there was a short window where it was practically just brutally hard to do. So I made a choice not to do it, whether it was by default or intentional, but I am still that person and I still have that value. So I'm going to wake up today and do the thing that I know is going to make me feel the way I want to feel. And like, that's, that may mean the change happens slower, but it's, it's still in process. Yeah. And at the same time, right? Like I've become a the Peloton sent me this bike, you know, to try out. I thought, all right, I'll get the bike. Why not? I'll ride it. Well, it turned out for whatever reason, it was the right thing for me. Like it unlocked something in my fitness that has made a huge, I just love it. I just, I've been doing it for years now and it works for me. And, but there, I will occasionally do these things. It's a, it's a type of training you can do on Peloton known as power zone training. And there are groups outside of Peloton communities that form and they will do like a challenge, you know, 45 day power zone challenge. Like I find those helpful, even though fitness is a direction, it's a place I want to go. I do find, you know, like a program that gives me some specificity can be really helpful a community accountability and support. And, and so it, I don't think it's either or, but I think, again, knowing ourselves and and what works for ourselves, you know, I just know I respond to that sort of like 45-day program. Knowing though that I know myself and my life well enough to know that most likely I'm not going to be in the same place for 45 days to do anything. So I just admit, you know, accept that like two of those weeks, I'm not going to be anywhere near a bike. So something else is going to have to happen. Um, I interviewed a guy, I don't remember his name, but he talks about flexible habits. You know, I think it's Mm. really interesting about like, when do we need rigidity and specificity and, you know, and when do we need flexibility and finding the right balance of those things is, is really kind of an art in some ways. Yeah, I love that. It's it's funny as you were describing that, like the the word that kept popping into my head is agile. You know, yeah. like we need a certain agility so that we have a certain structure in place. It's intelligent, it's well thought out, it aligns with that underlying value of who we see ourselves are, who we see ourselves wanting to become and what's important to us. And at the same time, it gives us behaviors to say yes to, like you were just talking about, like 45 day challenge or something that you're really drawn to that will help affect that change. And then holding it, you know, being committed to it. And yes, yet also acknowledging your humanity. I remember years ago, 
it's funny, I'm in Boulder, Colorado right now, but back then I was living in New York. We had flown out to Boulder to record a whole bunch of interviews. This is when we were filming in the very early days. One of those people was Brad Feld, who's this sort of like legendary founder and venture capitalist out here, and also just like a really decent guy. And he was talking about some of the, he was talking about how he had this really powerful value around wanting to have a deep, loving, connected relationship with his wife. And part of that was a commitment to certain rituals that they had, like on a morning basis, connecting every morning. And then once a month, they would have these things called life dinners where they would go out, they'd go to a restaurant, they'd get a bottle of wine. They would talk about the relationship, the good, like everything that needed to be talked about. They would exchange gifts. Sometimes they would laugh. Sometimes they would cry. Sometimes both. Sometimes it was just fine. But I bring it up because he knew that he wanted to, like he had this value around relationships. He knew that the way that he had been in relationships in the past wasn't the way that he wanted to be in them. So he wanted to affect change. They created these behaviors that really meaningful. But at the same time, he also knew that his life, especially then, was he was on planes, trains, and automobiles all the time. So they literally built in a tolerance to the life dinners of like it was like 18.1% of like life dinners on a, on a 12-month basis that he could yeah. miss. And they would still look at it as this is a successful thing. Like we are both committed to this and it's working and it's honoring our values. So like like he literally looked at his life in advance and said, I know the, the nature of my life. So let me acknowledge that and literally build it into, build a certain amount of flexibility and agility and forgiveness into the bigger process. So I can still feel like I'm succeeding. I love that. I often, you know, in my own life, if it's something I'm trying to do essentially very, very regularly, my tolerance is about 10%. Now, I'm mm. not measuring that tightly, but it gives me a general sense. That, so, I, I, you know, if my goal is to meditate every day and I miss three days a month, I don't think that's like, oh, I missed three days a month. I think like I'm nailing it, right? Like that's winning, knowing that a hundred percent is possible. And depending where you're coming from, that tolerance might need to be 70%, 80%, right? Like, you know, I've been doing some of these things long enough. I think that I've got my system down decently enough, but knowing that perfection isn't going to happen is critical. Just like, okay, what does success look like for me? If success is a hundred percent, I'm going to be disappointed. You know, unless you have a life that never changes and you're a robot, like, you know, expect some amount of, I don't even want to use the word failure, deviance from the goal. And I think building that in the beginning is, um, it's just really, really smart, but we, we never do it. I'm just thinking about so many different things where I kind of think to myself, okay, I want to achieve this or accomplish this or change this. I go and I research, like I'll find out what are all the different approaches to this? What's the one that makes the most sense to me? Where's the program that somebody else has built? that proves that it works, like that gets you from where you are now to the outcome that you want and let me follow that program. And I'm thinking to myself, how many times I've done that, thinking I'm just locked in, like I'm ready to go. Like I have, it's proven, like thousands of people have done this before me. And then I'm like, I say yes to it. I put it into my calendar and you know, like nine days later, I'm like, nope, not happening. Because I took something and I never actually said, okay, so and how does this work with my life? <laughs> yes. You know, I, I'm doing less of it now, but I did a lot of 
particularly as I left my my the my job and and moved into the podcasting, I did a lot of one on one coaching for a while around behavior, and so I got a a lot of you know a lot of reps in, and just really realizing like there are some principles that we can talk about, but people are different. You know, you've got to know yourself. You know, there are some people that the direction we need to go is like, stop being so hard on yourself. Like we need to tone that way down. There are other people where we need to turn the accountability dial up, right? Not knowing that, that's just one example of many different variables. How busy are you? How chaotic is your life? You know, are you solely responsible for childcare? So if a child gets sick, it falls on you. What's the health of your parents? You know, I mean, there's all these different factors that really means that there isn't a one size fits all for people. And so really thinking about, like you said, okay, this program seems to make sense. It seems to be the right thing out there. How does this work for me? You know, where is it going to work? Where are the problems? Thinking through, you know, when, we, when I would build a plan with somebody, then I would say, okay, what are the five things that are most likely to go wrong with this plan? You know, like I'm sure, I mean, you, I'm sure you're a master at that, right? In certain areas of your life, right? So it's the same thing is, is, you know, okay, I've got this plan for making a change in my life. What's likely to go wrong? Oh, well, what's likely? And, and the thing that goes wrong for a lot of people is unexpected things. Kids got sick. Mom got sick, had to go out of town. I got sick. I mean, any number of different things were rolling along and then that interruption happens. And I find that is one of the, for people who are like, I'm really good at starting things, but I can't, I can't stay with them. I've identified that thing as one of the main problems. You're going along and when things are routine, you got it. But the less routine your life might be, you've got to really be able to roll with the punches. Yeah, no, so agree with that. It's like the small scale day-to-day black swans, right? The things that have to completely derail you. But you have no idea what they are until they are, yeah. you know, until they happen. I think it's an interesting exercise, like you were saying, to say, like, what are the five things that, like, you conceive of that like, might happen? But then even say, just given the nature of your life, your circumstance, like the context you're in, let's assume that there are going to be certain things that drop into your orbit. You have no idea. There's no <laughs> way for you to actually know them right now, right? And you build a, a tolerance just for unforeseen circumstances into whatever plan you have. So maybe it's 10% yep. forgiveness or wiggle room either way, purely based on the fact that your your life is hectic. You're, you may be a parent, you may be working two jobs, you may be like caretaking somebody else. Um, and just to, to give yourself that leeway so that even if those things where you have no way to project that they might happen now happen, yep. you can still say, and I can honor them. I can do what I need to do to take care of them. And still feel like I'm I'm succeeding at this path of growth and change yep. along the way, rather than I got to tap out. I've just failed. Also, what is a fallback behavior mm. that I might be able to do? Um, let's say you know my goal is um, it's a phrase I use a lot, uh, which is that a little bit of something is better than a lot of nothing. So a lot of us, if it's like, all right, I'm supposed to go to the gym today for an hour. And my hour gets blown. Let's say I was going to go from 12 to 1 and I've got a meeting that goes till 12.20. Instead of going, all right, well, you know what? I've still got 40 minutes. I'm not going to make it to the gym and back, but I'm going to go walk outside for 20 minutes. We just, we bag the whole thing. 
So thinking about like, what do I do? Like, what, what do I do if I can't complete this behavior? Is there a smaller version of it that I can do? You know, I, I remember this one for me, my goal is like, I'm, you know, here's, I've got an exercise plan and my mom goes into the hospital and now I'm going to be at the hospital for eight hours a day on top of working like exercise. It's gone. Right. Except I'm like, well, you know what? I could just go walk the hospital halls for 15 minutes. I could go up and down the stairs a few times. It's that little bit of something is better than nothing. A, it sort of, I mean, it does give me some fitness benefit, but B, it kind of reaffirms my commitment. It sort of gets me away from like the hard stop, you know, where I feel like, okay, I did the best I could, you know? And so I think that's the, you know, just thinking about things like that, you know, I want to meditate every day, and I do it in the morning for 30 minutes or whatever. But this morning, my kid was not feeling well and et cetera, et cetera. But you know what? I've got five minutes I could sit quietly at my desk. You know, is there something small that I can do? And again, we could say five minutes of meditation, probably in the grand scheme of our lives, doesn't make much difference whether you do that five minutes or not. But in the context of continuing a behavior that you've committed to, it actually does matter a lot. And in reinforcing that identity level yes. value, it lets you keep saying, I am still the person who does X and who says that, you know, like this thing matters yes. to me because I figured out a way to do it in some way, shape or form, even though like I, I was knocked off, like what my original intention or what the plan was. So like, you know, it's like it, it reinforces that identity level value. Um, and it lets you keep saying I'm the person who does this, yes. which then makes it much more likely that you will keep doing it over time because it's, it's not just a thing you do, it's who you are. Love that. So if you're looking for ways to be happier, healthier, and more productive and creative, I have got a great podcast recommendation for you. And it's from an old friend of mine, Gretchen Rubin. She's the number one bestselling author of The Happiness Project. And every week she shares insights and practical solutions in the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast along with her co-host and happiness guinea pig, her sister, Elizabeth Kraft, who's also a Hollywood showrunner. So you can join Gretchen and Elizabeth as they reveal really fun and wise insights from cutting-edge science, ancient wisdom, pop culture, and their own experiences about cultivating happiness and good habits. Every week, they offer a manageable try-this-at-home tip that you can use to boost your happiness without spending a lot of time and energy or money. Suggestions such as follow the one-minute rule, choose a one-word theme for the year, or design your summer. And they also feature segments like Know Yourself Better, where they discuss questions like, are you an overbuyer or underbuyer, a morning person or night person, abundance lover or simplicity lover? And every episode includes a happiness hack, a quick, easy shortcut to more happiness. I have had the great fortune to be able to share countless lunches and coffees with Gretchen in New York over a period of actually decades at this point and learned so much from her. And now you get the benefit of her wisdom too. So listen and follow Happier with Gretchen Rubin, an Odyssey podcast available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. 
With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. You know, one of the things I think with change would be interesting to explore also is um, how do we look at change over the long term? Like how much might we change? How much can we change? And also the issue of comparing ourselves to others, which I think is another really pernicious thing that can really get in the way of change. Mm, Those are really juicy questions. That last one, especially, it's almost like what I hear when I hear you saying that is, who are we actually changing for? Mm. Um, You know, like, is this actually, are we doing this because we want to be accepted by other people based on their norms, their standards, um, just because we want to be loved or beloved or held by them? Or is there something deeper inside of us? It just feels like just for me, even if nobody ever knows, even if I never tell anybody else, like there's a way that I want to be differently in my skin, in the world, in my relationships, that's meaningful to me and me alone. Um, Yeah. I think the notion, the whole question of like why we even want to change is interesting and maybe even determinative in our ability to, to affect change and sustain it. I mean, do you think that's, it's, it's like that central? Yes. I think our why is critically important. You know, why are we doing this? If, if we don't, if we don't have good clarity on that, it's very difficult to maintain any, I mean, most real change is going to take a significant amount of time, both in investment time and calendar days. Like it just, It just doesn't happen quickly. And so inevitably, then there's going to be, I think, lots of times where you're like, well, that seemed like a good idea, but it sure doesn't seem like a good idea today, you know? So why am I, you know, why am I doing this? And then also, what are my expectations about what the nature of the change will be? You know, if I think that I'm going to lose uh, 20 pounds in, I mean, this is an easy example. It's it's kind of a straw man, but if I think I'm going to lose 20 pounds in 10 days, I'm going to be very disappointed in that when I don't achieve that. And particularly if we start thinking about changes that are more than, that that aren't as easy to measure uh, something on a scale, you know, my changes to how reactive I am to my children. You know, how much might I expect to change? And, you know, I think it's interesting back to the idea of tolerance. Like, what's the tolerance that I have knowing that, like, I'm not going to be perfect at something like that? And the idea of really understanding your why, I think, is it, it helps get you through all of the, um, the, the moments where you really want nothing to do with the behavior that will lead to change on any given day. It's having a flashback of in a very past life when I left my career as a law. I was in the fitness industry and I, and I started out, I was a personal trainer going to people's apartments in New York City, working with them. I remember taking the elevator up to this floor in a really fancy building in New York City. I get off the elevator and I'm walking down a very long hallway and to, to meet a new client, like my first consult with them. And as I'm like starting to walk towards the door, I hear yelling and screaming and I have no idea. Like it's coming from an apartment. I don't know what apartment it is. And I'm walking down the hall and I'm getting closer to the yelling and I'm getting closer to the yelling. And then I realize I'm at the end of the hall, like the doorway that I'm supposed to knock on is where the screaming is coming from. So I just stop for a minute and I listen and it's a man yelling and effectively saying, I never wanted to do this. You made me do this. You're forcing me to do this. And like, I want nothing to do with this. 
I can't believe you did this without my like. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, oh dear, dear, this is my this is my soon to be. <laughs> this is my client. Yeah. Right, which which I am a hundred percent sure I'm going to see for exactly sixty minutes and never see again yep, for the rest yep. of my life, which is exactly what happened. Um, it it, it kind of doesn't matter how much other people want you to change. You know, like th- there's got to be something inside of you that has to want it, and it's got to be for like, especially if it's something that's going to be hard and long and take effort. It's got to be more than just a superficial driver. Also, like there has to be something deeper. That's going to keep you in it and wake you up in the morning and say, it's cold, it's raining or whatever it is, but I still got to do the work. You know, maybe it's a relationship that you really want to repair where there's some, some wounding in the middle of that relationship, you know, that may be a month's or a years long process and it may be hard, but why does it matter so much to you to repair this? Like that's a big part of what's going to keep you in it. And I, I wonder if oftentimes even when we visit this question, we visit on a, on a really surface level and we never actually get to like, you know, like the five level why underneath that. Like, why does that matter? You know, it's like, why well, I want to lose 20 pounds. Like, why does that matter? Cause I've got a, my 20 year reunion coming up and I want to be able to look a certain way. And why does that matter to you? Well, because when I was in high school 20 years ago, I was bullied all the time. And why does it matter to you to like, yeah. And like, because I want to both respect myself and come from a place of dignity and be respected and, and, and treated with dignity. Oh, okay. Now that's something that I think will like when it's really hard to do the work, keep you going. But I wonder, cause you've done so much more sort of like individualized work and behavior change. Like, do you feel like that's a, something that you see fairly often where surely people, the initial response to why? It's fairly surface level and you really have to do some digging. Yeah. Uh, Your story made me laugh because as you were telling it, I was thinking, this sounds a lot like when I used to go to adolescent drug and alcohol treatment centers. (laughs) Like They're just not into it. Like, you know, like we'd go there to give a talk and I'd be like, they, they do, they have, there's just, again, every once in a while you find a, a kid who gets it, but the vast majority of them simply are like. I don't want to be here. My parents put me here. The minute I get out, I am getting high. And, you know, it just brought me back for a moment. Yeah, I think that what you said there is an important one. Like, you know, ask why and continue to, you know, get to, I think it's worth getting to the most, the most emotional core of it that you can, because we are emotional Mm. beings. You know, we, we are driven by emotion. And so the closer to that emotional core we can get, probably the better off we are. You know, I think the other thing that's hard and why people change is even with all the, the research that's out there, all the literature that's out there, all the work I've done with people, it is still to me, to some degree, a mystery. Mm-hmm. If you could crack the code on it, right? Like you'd be, I've often said, if you could figure out why a lot of people don't get sober, you could solve that problem, you'd be a billionaire, right? And so even with why, you know, like what I find really interesting and what's hard is your emotional why one day feels very poignant. And then three days later, it just feels empty. Mm -hmm. That's hard. That's part of the challenge is what do I do if my mood system is variable enough I just talked to, you've had him on your show, Diego Perez, young Pueblo, right? We were talking about low mood. He references being in a low mood often. And that's something I 
I, I do. And we were talking about like do's and don'ts for l- low moods, right? And one of them was don't reevaluate your strategy in a low mood. You know, mm. so when I'm in a low mood, I just try and be like, what's on the calendar? Just, just keep moving forward. Don't do not. This is the day this is not the day to debate whether you care about physical fitness. You're not in a place to have any sort of thing. It's just like, just try and move forward in the best way you can. And so I think that's the thing. Sometimes for me, I've had to realize that like, okay, my why feels really poignant today. Three days from now, it feels completely empty. I have to trust that it does matter, even though I can't feel it in this moment. I have to trust that it still does matter to me, that a better version of me is available. And that better may not be available in this moment, but that better version of me exists and it thinks this is important. I'm going to try and just stick with that better version, even though the version that's here today thinks, who cares? Mm, That brings up something that I think is really interesting that in a way references back to our conversation about work and meaningful work and sort of like reimagining what you're doing um, to give you a lot more, which is that if we are exploring saying yes to a process of personal change or a path of personal change and we get in touch with it. Why? And we talk about all the different sort of like ideas and strategies we've talked about the same way that we were saying before you leave a job or even think about leaving a job for something else that you hope will be better, do all the work to make where you are as good as humanly possible. When we think about a process of personal change, when we think about saying yes to it, when we're setting ourselves up for it, It feels to me like a similar principle would be at work here, which is, can I get as happy with myself, with my current circumstance, with the state of my being, my body, my relationship? How can I love as much as humanly possible the current state and not just revile it and use that negative energy to move away from, but how can I love myself as much as I, as I possibly can in the moment, in the state that I am right now, and still at the same time, yearn to exist differently. Because if you're just waiting to feel differently about yourself until you hit that moment where you're like, check the box changed. Now I love me. I love my relationships. I love my body. I love my I feel like that is going to be an empty quest. Like I I feel like a part of change, which is a little counterintuitive, is exploring ways to love or at least like a little bit more who you are in this moment in time and trying to add to that in tiny little bits along the way rather than just waiting until this moment down the road where I've like checked the box, the change has happened, and now I can finally say yes to me. I think that's extraordinarily well said and and maybe a great exclamation point to to put on the end of this you know is really that that very idea of yes i want to change yes i want things to be different but if i exist only in things being different i completely miss where i'm at now and i love that idea of i'm going to inhabit my life as it is today I'm going to inhabit myself. I'm going to inhabit my world as it is today, while I also look to make some changes. And I think you, you said it really well there. So I think that's a great place for us to to wrap up. Awesome. Sounds great. We got through two of our topics. So uh, we're 
at some point we're going to have to come back for a round yes. two and maybe maybe round three because I think we're going to keep adding to the topics yep. over time. Yep. It's so awesome to be in conversation in this way. Always. Um, in sort of like a non-interview format, just jamming on things we really care about. Yes, thank you, Jonathan. I always enjoy it. Yeah, thank you too. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you will also love many of the conversations that Eric hosts over at the One You Feed podcast. You'll find a link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you found this conversation interesting or inspiring or valuable, and chances are you did since you're still listening here, would you do me a personal favor, a seven second favor and share it? Maybe on social or by text or by email, even just with one person. Just copy the link from the app you're using and tell those you know, those you love, those you want to help navigate this thing called life a little better so we can all do it better together with more ease and more joy. Tell them to listen. Then even invite them to talk about what you've both discovered because when podcasts become conversations and conversations become action, that's how we all come alive together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project.